but we're in an emissions elimination paradigm now. What that means is, is that our systems actually have to be fundamentally retooled. We can't just keep the existing systems and make them more efficient. We have to change the existing systems. Thinking differently means moving beyond our, our frankly, typical path-dependent ways of operating and appreciating that. Grid integration has been um, studied and studied, but now with net zero commitments, it is more and more at the forefront, if not at the heart. Welcome to the Flux Capacitor, a podcast about the future of electricity. I'm Francis Bradley of Electricity Canada. This is episode 063, number 63 of the Flux Capacitor. This episode brings me back to focusing on net zero with a conversation with the folks from the Transition Accelerator and Canada Grid. On episode 58, I had a chat with the board chair at the Transition Accelerator, and today is a chance to go deeper with my guests. Dan Wicklum, I'm the CEO of the Transition Accelerator. Paisley Sim, I'm the Canada Grid Lead, which is an initiative of the Transition Accelerator. Dan, Paisley, and I talk about how the Transition Accelerator works and the role of Canada Grid. We discuss the recent emissions reduction plan from the Government of Canada, the challenges of energy and environmental policy within the Canadian Constitution's division of powers between Ottawa and the provinces, and we chat about where leadership will need to come from. And we close with two book recommendations to add to the Flux Capacitor Book Club. Here is my conversation with Dan and Paisley, recorded on Zoom in late May 2022. Glad that you were both able to join the podcast today. I had an opportunity uh, you know, a little over a month ago to talk to uh, Bruce Lurie, and we had a great chat, kind of a, a lot about sort of where the Transition Accelerator came from. It was a really interesting conversation, but, uh, you know, as, as I said to both of you, it would be great to, to drill down on some of this stuff and talk about what does this actually mean in practical terms? Um, you know, what are some of the some of the key initiatives that the Transition Accelerator is, is working on? And, you know, in particular, Canada Grid, and how does that fit into the future, given that this podcast is all about the, the future of electricity. You know, I'm always interested in talking about a broad variety of topics around decarbonization, but I always like to bring it back to electricity. So maybe start there. And, and Dan, maybe if we could kick off with you, you know, for the listener, where do you see the, the transition accelerator uh, going, um, you know, in the, in the next couple of years? What do you see as the, the big priorities for, uh, for the accelerator? The big priorities for the accelerator. Well, <clears throat> maybe I'll talk just a little bit about the model. Yeah. You know, so we're a charity. We're three years old, and we were essentially launched because individual parts of our society think government, or industry, or civil society, or academia, all have a a great necessary role to play in defining pathways to, to net zero. Yeah. But it's often the solutions are really in the space, the interstitial spaces between these types of, of sectors and institutions. Mm -hmm. And um, we felt that it was important to have bodies whose job it was is to basically fill up those interstitial spaces or create the linkages 
among these institutions and sectors so that you can truly can collaborate. And often it's difficult to collaborate inside of organizations, but if you yeah. if you get into a sort of a neutral space, it becomes much, much more easier, easier to run the culture, easier on the relationships, mm -hmm. um, and easier, easier often on things like administration, like think contracting and so on and so forth. So, so that's what we do. We work with parties mm -hmm. to define what we think are functional future systems in 2050, mm -hmm. build pathways to those systems. Right. So, so, so the focus really, it really is squarely aimed at uh, getting to 2050, right? The answer is yes and no. Okay. Um, one of the things that, that we do is we think we bring a fundamentally new framing on how to achieve emissions reductions. Mm -hmm. And when we launched the accelerator, we actually went to change experts because that's really what this whole transition is about. It's about change. Yet, um, most of our techniques and our approaches and our theories uh, and our frameworks really sort of evolved over 30 years of needing to reduce emissions. Mm -hmm. um, often when you talk about emissions reductions, immediately people and organizations enter into a negative frame. It's about, right. it's about difficulties, it's about barriers, it's about right. pipelines or conflict or something. We take exactly the opposite because we tapped into change experts and change experts said, look, they're fundamentally uh, truths about the way people think and the way institutions and organizations think. And we are absolutely not relying on this, these types of truths and the theories associated with them in helping ourselves in the transition. And let me, let me give you one example, Francis. So, mm -hmm. so change experts will tell you it's almost impossible to get people or groups of people inside of a company or a government. It's almost impossible to get people to change from a known situation to an unknown situation even if the known situation is really, really crappy. Okay. So, so look, let's take a look at this in terms of, of emissions reduction. Like yeah. we know the situations we live, we know our, our business models, we know our structures, we know our daily lives. Mm -hmm. I don't think anyone, myself included, really knows what it would be like to wake up in the morning in 2050 and live inside of a net zero society. Mm -hmm. The future is sort of unknown. And yet look what we're doing. We're asking every person in the country, every institution, every company, every sector to change from a known situation, even though it's not great, to an unknown situation. So mm -hmm. right away, we're violating when the fundamental truths of how people think and how organizations and people change, we're not making it easier on ourselves. So so we, we've very systematically with change experts gone through uh, and, and identified about a dozen of these truths. We've, and we've written them up on our founding document. You can find it mm -hmm. on the transitionaccelerator.ca website. Right. Um, and, we've, and we've sort of taken all this body of knowledge and put it into a, a four-part framework, four steps to actually mm -hmm. take a new framing on how you, how you do transitions. I won't get into the details, but one of the steps is work with others to develop, co-develop a vision of the future. Okay, so this is the, the understand, co-develop, analyze, advance. That's exactly it. Okay. So, you know, and, you know, and, and, and that one step is very purpose-fit mm -hmm. solution to the problem of, People don't like changing from known to unknowns. So, we, so we 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 take an unknown in 2050. What does your life look like? Yeah. And we actually describe. Well, this is what your life looked like. And of course, that might be your personal life, or it might be a business model, or something, or you know, a sectors. Uh, you know, what a sector could look like, depending on the scale of resolution. But we're basically demystifying the future mm -hmm. by creating a really really positive future for people. Uh, so they're not in this this box of changing from unknown to known. They're changing from 
sorry, for changing from known to unknown. They're changing from a known to a known that we've, we know what the future is going to look like. Okay. Looks, yeah. Last sort of pillar I would say is that if we focus just on emissions reduction, <clears throat> we immediately fall into the traps of conflict, divisive debates, um, difficulties, barriers. So we frame it, frankly, in a positive, you know, there's always opportunity and change. And mm -hmm. what other things could we accomplish? What other goals, objectives, improvements could we realize in this transition that makes the future compelling state to drive to, not just for emissions reductions, but it could, could it, how, how could it be better, <clears throat> fairer, um, more prosperous, um, not just cleaner in terms of emissions, but actually cleaner environment so it's healthier. Mm -hmm. So we actually paint a future that solves problems, right. multiple problems across mul multiple axes. Oh, and by the way, we actually build in deep emissions reductions to the point of zero as well. Mm -hmm. so, so that's really the transition accelerator methodology is describing positive futures, harnessing uh, systems that are already in motion, solving problems, but building deep emissions reductions into the into into the solutions. And, you know, it actually is a fundamentally different way uh, to address emissions by frankly not focusing on emissions. And right. we had fr frankly remarkable um, remarkable uh, positive reception and sort of uptake. So now, now I'm back to answering your question, like what are their priorities? Mm -hmm. Look, you know, we fundamentally think that um, uh, we've just come out of a, a 30 year period of emissions reduction, an emissions reduction phase or paradigm, when all we had to really do is make our existing systems more efficient. Mm -hmm. But the systems didn't have to change, take transportation mm -hmm. or energy or buildings. But we're in an emissions elimination paradigm now. Right. What that means is, is that our systems actually have to be fundamentally retooled. We can't just keep the existing systems and make them more efficient. We have to change the existing systems. So when you take a look at through that lens, um, we are helping to define what a future hydrogen system looks like, what a future electricity system looks like, what future building systems looks like, what future agricultural system looks like. And of course, those are the major sort of parts of our economy, the way that we understand them and collect data and report on them are major emitting um, parts of, of, uh, of our society. So those are our priorities is basically um, hydrogen and electricity, future, mm -hmm. future energy system, um, uh, agriculture, and then sub components inside of that. So think uh, buildings and heat pumps, you know, as a more of a tactical way of uh, getting at those larger priorities. So yeah. that's gotta be one of the longest answers I've ever given. Uh, <laughs> so I'm gonna pause now. Well, All right, well, uh, I, I'm, I'm gonna turn to, to Paisley, but in just a moment, because one of the things that, that I do ask folks that come on the podcast is about their journey. I always find it interesting to, to get a sense of, of, of people's journey and how, uh, you know, kind of how they came to, to where they are today. Uh, Dan, what was, what was your journey? I know a little bit about it. I know about your days in the CFL, but uh, <laughs> what was your, your, your journey to, uh, to, your, you know, to your role today uh, at the Transition Accelerator? Yeah, it's when I think back about it, I think, wow, what a, yeah, what a, you know, some people have a, a grand career plan, not yeah. me, Francis. not me, Francis, it just sort of evolved. But no, I, I, my first job was, yeah, I was a football player. I played for the Calgary St. Peter's mm -hmm. for three years and Winnipeg for one. That was yeah. a great phase of my life, but um, ended up um, being an aquatic ecologist first. So mm. doctorate and postdoc and so on are in um, freshwater biology, mm -hmm. fisheries management, water quality, so on and so forth. Quickly, and I was in academia, I was on faculty at the University of Montana, 
quickly realized that I was never going to be a very good academic. Mm -hmm. um, so, I, uh, so I ended up landing in Ottawa working for Ralph Goodale on his political staff. He was the Minister yep. of Natural Resources at the time. Yep. Spent um, about a year and a half with him. Um, remarkable experience at learning basically the system of government, not just from the department's perspective, from, but, but you know, machinery of government and politics. Mm -hmm. Ended up going into the department, both NRCAN and Environment Canada, for about 10 years, managing Canada's water. So I was a, um, nationally, you know, at Environment Canada, I was the DG of water or uh, one time, DG of uh, uh, wildlife research at one time. So basically creating the knowledge in research, monitoring, managing lab networks, to, so the Canada could fulfill its water or uh, uh, or wildlife responsibilities under Tipa mm -hmm. and Sarah and so on and so forth. Um, got to do some interesting things. I negotiated a UN treaty on behalf of Canada as the mm -hmm. negotiator. That was great. I mean, government's quite a remarkable position. I was co-chair of the uh, the science advisory body of the International Joint Commission. So that, again, things that you get to do in government that. Um, are uh, I think really important in terms of the machinery, but not very high profile. Mm. I left government then a couple of times during that stint to launch new NGOs, sort of like the transition accelerator, always mm -hmm. around natural resource functions and always sort of trying to play that interstitial linking role between academia, government, industry. Um, ran one in, uh, that was focused on oil sands called COSIA for about seven yep. years. Sure. Um, eventually left government. And now three years ago, we launched the transition accelerator. So. That's essentially who I am in a nutshell. And I don't know whether it's good or bad. I can summarize it in, in, a, in a minute and a half, but uh, <laughs> that's what led me here. Yeah. That's great. Th thanks for that, Dan. Our paths have crossed, crossed that a number of times over, over the last several years. So it's always interesting to, to, to kind of get a sense of what that, that path was. Let me, let me shift gears for a little bit. And um, those steps that the transition accelerator goes through, you know, the, the understand, co-develop, analyze, advance, and maybe Paisley, where does, where does Canada grid fit um, uh, sort of on that, uh, on that continuum? Or is it, is it all across? Are you, are you doing all of the, all of the above uh, in Canada grid um uh, actually, maybe before that, for, for the listener, a little bit about you know what Canada Grid is and how it fits. Sure. So uh, Canada Grid is an initiative of the Transition Accelerator, and we are a coalition focused on grid modernization and grid integration. Mm -hmm. And for us, the starting point for understanding really the challenge of aligning electricity systems in Canada with a net zero future is that uh, the net zero commitments really do change everything. They require a different systems approach. This is, you know, riffing off what Dan was saying, moving from an emissions reduction paradigm to an emissions elimination paradigm. It really does change the options, the technologies, but really most of all, the urgency that surrounds the challenge to decarbonize. And so we believe that the paradigm shift does call on different voices and actors to get involved, which is the basis of our, our broad coalition. But then also it calls on these actors to compel governments at all levels, regulators and certainly utilities to act. And, um, you know, while there continues to be debate around the exact pathways uh, to a net zero society, there's really remarkable certainty and consensus on some of the largest and truly the most important parts 
Um, and as we saw, you know, recently in the emissions reduction plan, uh, there is a projected doubling of demand for electrification in a net zero future. Um, and, you know, grid integration, um, there's a developing consensus that it not only has really great potential, but it's almost certainly required to get to net zero. And so it prevents not only tangible investment opportunities, um, but opportunity to uh, increase the share of renewables, really change up um, the electricity mix and have uh, some tremendous benefits for rate pairs in the long run. Mm -hmm. So that's sort of the, the snapshot of some of what we're focused on with respect to grid modernization and uh, grid integration. Um, and as an initiative of the accelerator, we're working on a whole host of, of different projects with our partners. Um, but specifically, you know, if we take that the, you know, governments have set a goal to reduce emissions from electricity generation by 77%, this is coming from 2019 levels, that's, that goal is uh, to be reached by 2030, and then a net zero grid by 2035. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, we we kind of can't work fast enough to advance this conversation. Yeah. Um, and in terms of the accelerators methodology, we are an example of um, a coalition that's spun out based on um, the consensus of decision makers mm -hmm. across the whole electricity supply chain. We take as our starting point um, a series of reports published in uh, 2019 and 2020 by the Northeastern Electrification Decarbonization Alliance, or NIDA. Yep. And so they did a really comprehensive survey of decision makers at a C-suite level in um, the New England area and Eastern Canada about what it would take to um, increase, or not so much increase, but what it would take to think differently about the way that we uh, silo our systems. And there was incredibly strong consensus um, for the creation of a neutrally funded third party um, to convene the sort of conversations and mm -hmm. facilitate conversation around market integration and regional planning. And with that comes a need for shared modeling tools, right. um, shared sources of information and data, and a whole host of other things to actually get you there. And so that, that uh, consensus out of the NIDA reports um, over the course of time has turned into the founding of, of Canada Grid. Mm -hmm. um, we were launched uh, by the accelerator um, last fall, so have uh, only only been at this for about just under a year. Mm -hmm. um, but in that short time, have been um, you know working to expand the coalition and certainly socialize the ideas of grid integration and grid modernization. Um, and the interest has been uh, overwhelming and overwhelmingly positive. Yeah, and so while initially. The, the 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 genesis was the northeast presumably now your, your your focus is right across the country yeah i mean i think we can appreciate that canada grid is is uh we are looking at what it would take to get canada's house in order so to speak yeah. and think a bit differently about uh, grid integration um but we also you know appreciate that there is no one macro grid there's a series of, mm -hmm. of independent and loosely tied together grids which is in part why they're you know they're not as efficient as they could be okay so, so that's that's one of the issues that needs to be addressed presumably certainly and i think yeah, that okay. looking at um uh looking at canada is our our focus 
first and foremost. Mm-hmm. But Canada has uh, long established, um, you know, interties north-south. Yeah. So we do um, have some lines of inquiry in eastern Canada looking into the New England area too. Mm-hmm. Hey, I'm going to ask you, Paisley, the same question that I asked Dan uh, uh, about your uh, your journey as well. When you know, I, I do make the joke. You know, when you were a young kid on the playground, did you did you always dream of uh, of being the, the team lead for Canada Grid? How did you get to How did you get to where you are? Good question. Um, I did go through a period where I, I grew up in Alberta, and I did go through a period wondering if I should uh, have um, become an electrician because oh. that was always. <laughs> but at, at heart, I, I'm always I've always been interested in in how things work. Um, which is why I think what I do now for Canada Grid is, is focus on strategy, process, certainly policy and relationships, which are all the ingredients of how things work. Mm-hmm. But my background is, a, a, I'm, I'm a generalist in many ways. My background is actually in um, fine arts. I have uh, two fine arts degrees. I went through a, a fine arts conservatory um, and spent many years working in nonprofit settings mm-hmm. as well as working um uh, at the University of Calgary. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I spent a number of years um, working in government in Alberta, and that was hit the ground running, really learned uh, a great deal about the province that I'm from and learned about how uh, intergovernmental relations work or sometimes don't work. Mm-hmm. Um, that was such a such a privilege for me as a person from Alberta to, to see the province from that perspective. Um, and I ended up, um, I, I did a master in public policy, found myself at McGill, and appreciated that, uh, you know, the things that I, areas in which I thrive are certainly um, rich in complexity mm-hmm. <laughs> and mm-hmm. relationships right. and somehow working um, as a producer in the arts and then finding yourself producing politics in one way or another or producing mm-hmm. stuff of policy is um, not that dissimilar from working with a, a coalition mm-hmm. and trying to advance ideas that are, are trying to push for systems change. And so that's a, a bit of my background. I think it's in some respects a non-traditional background, but uh, bringing a, a different generalist perspective to the field, um, and certainly, uh, <laughs> yeah, it's been a it's been a bit distinct in terms of you know working with a ton of really smart engineers and economists. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think that having a background um, in the liberal arts just means you think about collaboration, you think about things a little bit differently, and it really does add value. Right, right. I want to circle around, circle back to the uh, government's emissions reduction plan. And, uh, you know, uh, I think both you and Dan mentioned it. And, and Dan, we, we'd spoken about it. Um, I, I guess uh, we saw each other the day it was released. So I'd, I'd be interested to, to kind of get your, your take on that. But, but before that, Paisley, uh, one of the things that is um, uh, uh, in the government's plan is the establishment of a, of a, of a grid council under the, under the government of Canada. And I think there's like these provincial or regional tables that are going to be established. How would um, Canada grid, you know, relate to, or, or interact with, or, or uh, you know, how do you, how do you see the, those working together or are, or are you saying to government, you don't need a grid council here. It is. You know, just, I just, just, just kind of, get, yeah. Good question. And I think for, for me, it comes back to, you know, appreciating that at heart, the challenge of increased grid integration, it's really, they're not necessarily technical, they're largely social and and political issues. And they can, you know, they include 
uh, siloed planning uh, and outlooks, a preference for in-jurisdiction solutions, you know, absence of any sort of regional planning process, mm -hmm. you know, pretty limited information sharing, institutional barriers, things like that. And we really do think that the funding and creation of Pan-Canadian Grid Council and uh, these regional tables, mm -hmm. it's, an, it's an essential first step to boosting collaboration and coordination because okay. uh, it can create the incentives for provinces and certainly for utilities to come to the table to plan for larger regional grids that is potentially one of the outcomes, but really to take advantage of uh, regional complementarity. And so because we take as our starting point a series of studies, as I mentioned in NIDA, that support the creation yeah. of uh, a body to advance this conversation on, on grid modernization and grid integration, um, you know, we know that the federal government has created a roadmap through the ERP, but that a lot of the highly um, detailed planning work and implementation work, it does lie with the provinces. And so for us, I'm sure that, uh, you know, Dan has much more to say about this in, in the broader sort of quest for net zero, but the Pan-Canadian Grid Council is the right, um, potentially the right starting point to having the right conversations um, and defining, you know, what is what is potentially a, a regional, a right right size regional solution mm -hmm. is, you know, um, uh, uh, the macro grid of Canada, which I think we can appreciate is is not is not the right aim. Right. And I want to circle back to to you know how we kind of get through the some of those challenges that the, the federal provincial uh, dynamic, but. But uh, um, Dan, I'd, I'd like to get your take on, on the, the emissions reduction plan to begin with. And you, you and I um, chatted very briefly, I think, uh, when we were in Vancouver on the day the ERP was released. And so uh, it was still kind of a hot take. Uh, at that point, it had only been out for a very short period of time. And, and uh, I, I recall you saying that, you know, the good news, the, the great news is we actually have a plan um, uh, because, you know, we, we didn't we didn't have a plan prior to that. Uh, and so we've got something to, to work with now that you've had well several weeks now to digest um, what's in the emissions reduction plan. What's, what's your take on it? Um, you know, how, how would you, how would you score it? And, you know, what do you, what, what, what do you think the, uh, the, the prospects are for, you know, for this actually being a blueprint for the, for the future? I mean, I think the context for the plan is that of course it, it was, the government was required to create a plan and put yeah. it into the public domain because it did pass the Canadian emissions reduction accountability act mm -hmm. that, also has other requirements. You know, the federal government has to to, to put into the public domain uh, emissions reduction targets, interim targets between now and 2050 every five years. Right. So that that act put in place, uh, you know, target. There, there's other responsibilities as well. So it, there are um, uh, sort of auditing functions by the Commission on Environment and Sustainable Development of the plan. They have to come up with sort of updates to the plan uh, between the you know the five year major. Um, emission reduction plans that are anchored to the targets. So I think that's all good governance. I mean, mm -hmm. and frankly, that's sort of where the world is going, where national governments put in place legislation that require them to do things and so don't leave it up to the whim of the government of the day. That's good. Um, I think this emission reduction plan was done quite hastily, meaning the act was passed, uh, it got through both houses, not mm -hmm. that long before it was, the plan was required to, to get into the public domain. Right. So I think the first one was a bit hasty. I think all the elements are there, um, meaning, you know, there is a breakdown of the government's feeling about 
what emissions will be reduced in what sectors that will add up to the to the target mm -hmm. that they have set themselves for for 2030 so that's good i think um there is a, a list of the of the provisions that the government feels is going to get them to that 2030 uh, target mm -hmm. um i think there's the, the the great reaction i think to um, most commentators was this is a really good step mm -hmm. but now it's about implementation yeah implementation not just around you know success of the programs that are already up and running because that's the plan relies on, on a lot of those, those programs think um you know uh, ev uh, financial incentives you know mm -hmm. that, that thing mm -hmm. but there's a fair bit of the plan where what the government says we're going to do something new we're going to develop a new program and it's going to look like this and this is how much it's going to cost us and this is the emission reductions that we're going to get out of that new program or new new initiative and you know so that's that's great that's that's what a plan is for but as always you know to use maybe one of the most overused phrases in this whole notion of transition devil's in the details yeah so you know i think these these annual updates will be really really important so the government can get very explicit and specific on how is it going on the things that they said they were going to do how's it going and i think it's very important to have sort of uh, interim assessment checks not just the fact that they've got programs up and running but is a program working as expected of actually mm -hmm. realizing the emissions reductions that they said they would based on specific elements of, of the you know, sub elements of the plan. So it's encouraging, it's great, but it's about implementation now. And that's, I think, um, you know, where we all have to, uh, you know, basically follow it quite closely about whether the plan is uh, rolling out as we thought it would. And look, some things are going to be wildly successful as in all complex plans, some mm -hmm. things probably won't be. And I think the government has to have the courage to be able to quickly assess the things that are not working well. Yeah. and change them and uh, so this is not a plan about where i think it's realistic for us as the canadian voters to hold the government accountable to every single thing they said in the plan mm -hmm. i think it's more important that they get the big picture right and they adjust and they have the confidence to say some things aren't working we're adjusting in these ways and i think we have to have the courage to give them the latitude to adjust on the way in transparent ways so yeah. right you you've spent dan a, a fair amount of time um, in the, you know, the policy development uh, in Ottawa, uh, both on the political side, on the departmental side, you, you've seen the, the, some of the challenges on the federal, provincial, federal, provincial, territorial dynamics. Um, we, and we touched on a, a little bit about this, but, you know, I, I, I you know, keep hearing from a, a number of people that these are probably the more sort of uh, w wicked issues in terms of, uh, you know, trying to get provinces uh, together on some of these issues that can be uh, challenging from a federal, provincial, territorial standpoint, where we have essentially the federal government establishing uh, standards um, in areas that are, are primarily provincial jurisdiction. Do you, you know, have a sense that we've, uh, you know, we've figured out how we're going to make some of this actually work? How how we're we're going to we're going to actually get provinces to work together, or is it going to just remain a, a wicked problem that we keep banging our head against the wall on? I mean, I think it's going to remain a wicked problem, but I think we have and will continue to make progress on it. And I think that so long as we re remain committed to outcomes and the eventual goal, that's mm -hmm. the frame that we need to keep uh, in mind as we develop new working relationships and joint programs and synergies and so on and so forth. 
Prince, I've actually got two hats here, as you know. So I talked about the fact that I'm with the Transition Accelerator. But I have committed also 20% of my time for three years to the Federal Minister of the Environment to co-chair something called the Net Zero Advisory Body. Yep. The Net Zero Advisory Body really has two main functions. Advise uh, the Federal Minister of the Environment and Climate Change and Cabinet and the Prime Minister when asked on these interim reduction targets mm -hmm. and also on the most likely pathways to net zero. And the advisory body, um, in our terms of reference, has something called lines of inquiry. Mm -hmm. Frankly, you can think of those priorities. Um, one of the priorities that we have given ourselves is governance. Mm -hmm. And we feel very strongly that that body, the NZAB, should not sort of redo departmentals, uh, uh, you know, duplicate departmental functions, should not duplicate industry association functions. It really needs to be a catalyst. Mm -hmm. And because of that, you know, we really want to play a role in understanding and attempting to help the system on governance in Canada. And for us, what that means is the tagline we use to describe it is making sure that we have the institution, institutional capacity, strategy, and relationships. And in some cases, that may mean um, different institutions, multiple levels of government, industry, NGOs, Indigenous interests, working in new and different ways. Mm -hmm. So. Um, we're going to be putting a fair bit of time in this next year sort of understanding the existing state of governance and hopefully coming up with some advice to uh, into the system but especially target of the government of canada about how to improve to just become more effective because you know in, in a in a very blunt way i actually sat on a panel in calgary here yesterday and you know it was all around sort of decision making the right. panel about yeah. about pathways to net zero and in one regard, why would we expect the current system? And I think I think of governance, you know, institutional role, um, uh, you know, risk management, incentive structures, leadership frameworks, expected you know financial returns. That system caused us to be where we are right now, which is we have this wicked yeah. problem. Yeah. You know, and the system has not been able to internalize the real price of carbon. That's the whole mm -hmm. issue. Why would mm -hmm. we expect the existing system to be able to manage a way out of this when it was not able to avoid the problem. And we knew it was th we've known this problem has been coming for 30 years. So yeah. I do think that, you know, institutional reform governance changes is probably required if we really want to be successful in this, again, like as you described, a wicked problem to net zero. Yeah. yeah. And Paisley, I mean, this, this is a wicked problem that, that plays out. Uh, in in your area uh, with respect to grid integration, right? I mean, that the, a lot of the issues that you're having to deal with are those those challenging interjurisdictional issues. How how are those conversations going? And and does it and are, are we you know are we making progress? Um, are, are things getting any any better with respect to at least on the grid integration side? Yeah, that's a that's a good question. And what it takes me back to is, I think if we uh, appreciate the scale and the the challenge and certainly the very aggressive timelines that have been set to decarbonize. Mm -hmm. We do need to have pretty well all options on the table. Mm -hmm. So we've seen, you know, numerous, numerous scholars, policymakers and companies tout the benefits of grid integration in Canada over the past two decades. So just a very short laundry list, but 
Um, you know, TransCanada Corporation promoted the concept of a Western Canadian uh, integrated grid starting in 2000. Mm-hmm. Um, the Canadian Academy of Engineering released some major publications in 2009 and, and 2014, recommending the development of enhanced east-west interconnects. The 2015, in 2015, the Senate released a report on northern infrastructure, including recommendations for further exploration of interties within the territories. Mm-hmm. Uh, In 2016, the Canadian Wind Energy Association commissioned a really major study by GE, which in part detailed how transmission interties can help integrate large amounts of wind onto the grid. Mm -hmm. Um, 2017, a significant parliamentary study examining the benefits of interjurisdictional interties. Um, 2018, um, Natural Resources Canada, they published two studies analyzing the benefits of deeper grid integration. Mm -hmm. More recently, um, we've commissioned a report from SGC in, in Montreal exploring the positive economic impacts of grid integration in the continental Northeast. And so at every turn, you don't have to look far to appreciate that there's, you know, there's a lot of support mm-hmm. and there's a strong economic case to be made for grid integration. But really to, you know, to answer your question, now that there's uh, the ERP and, you know, what you could consider a broader roadmap in hand and a great deal of certainty on the pretty big elements of this pathway moving forward. Um, You know, we're seeing a lot of positive steps in terms of convening conversations and the next steps are getting into much deeper into intergovernmental relations, importantly, opening the conversation beyond east-west interties, Mm -hmm. opening north-south transmission as well, which Mm -hmm. of course is not without its complexity. But what we really believe is that critical to this is a, a what we call our real world overlay, um, which brings together, um, you know, it's a bit of a gut check and right. it brings together representative voices um, to start making progress and realizing the benefits of grid modernization. And so, again, appreciating that the political challenge is not going to disappear because, you know, we cannot study our way out of this. Mm -hmm. Um, Really, the only way to advance this pathway is to get going, which may mean using, you know, federal funds and convening powers, provinces appreciating that, you know, there's there's tremendous benefits for stability and reliability by expanding grids, an example of which is we saw pretty devastating storms just this last week in Ontario and Quebec. Yep. And folks without um, without power running on, you know, neighbors generator micro grids for for days on end. So there's a real argument to be made for not only hardening infrastructure, but for uh, expanding transmission to increase that reliability. Um, you know, at the core of what we're doing is that, you know, thinking differently means moving beyond our, our frankly, typical path dependent ways of operating and appreciating that it. Grid integration has been um, studied and studied, but now with net zero commitments, it is uh, it is more and more at the forefront, if not at the heart, of reaching you know the projected doubling of demand. Mm-hmm. I, I guess uh, maybe my question would be, um, what is your uh, what's your level of optimism that we're actually going to 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 be able to to address um, some of these 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 political and and, and subnational issues. Oh, good question. I think that 
I, I mean, if I appreciate as a, you know, as a young person who is, is, you know, fairly new to the electrification space, mm -hmm. um, and every day we see more and more initiatives and really, really smart people contributing good and thoughtful work to this space to try to, uh, you know, meet the challenge of uh, net zero, if I appreciate that the entire backdrop of my career um, is going to be set to, you know, whether or not we meet 2050 goals, you have no choice, but to be optimistic, right. um, to be optimistic that despite the fact that we live in a highly decentralized federation, which every mm -hmm. time I say that I have to say, and that's just the way I like it because we are not expecting political magic. We have to work within this pretty complex federation that we have and appreciate that we cannot just study ourselves to a solution. We really have to get into the the complex and frankly the the squishy stuff of mm -hmm. of working with partners across regions and and seeing that there's opportunity to collaborate um i i am absolutely optimistic does it mean it's going to be a breeze like of course not of course not yeah right <laughs> but, yeah uh the the benefits are potentially too valuable mm -hmm. in the broader quest to decarbonize to not have this on the table um, and I think that, you know, we're seeing more and more that grid integration and certainly beyond that grid modernization is is critical to um, reaching our, our decarbonization goals. Mm -hmm. OK, so we've got squishy stuff. We've got uh, <laughs> wicked problems. Dan, Dan, where, where's where's the leadership going to have to come from? So it's interesting. I, I mentioned I sat on this panel yesterday and mm -hmm. and. Um, you know, there was a green power developer, there's the president of uh, Berkshire Hathaway Energy, um, there's a geothermal power developer, you know, myself, and that question, the, the uh, uh, UC prof that asked the question about leadership to all of us, we also had the same answer, and that is, it's going to have to come from everyone. Right. You know, and I, Francis, I often think of uh, in a paradigm shift. So, you know, I talked about for 30 years, we've been this in emissions reduction paradigm now that did not require system change. Now we're in the emissions and elimination paradigm. We've mm -hmm. actually, Accelerator's actually got a full day course, day and a half course that we give on this change of paradigm. The fact that net zero changes everything. Mm -hmm. And we, you know, we've given it to, you know, five provinces and, you know, top tier Fortune 500 corporates uh, and so on. So they can't keep up with the demand. But, you know, one of the, you know, one of the things that we do in the course is really describe, you know, what are the differences between an emissions reduction paradigm and emissions elimination paradigm. Mm. What are the implications and, and how can you use the implications in your company or government to, you know, to really develop a, a plan to get to net zero that's going to work for you, allow you to make money, but actually be real. And um, what, one of the observations we have in this framing is that for 30 years, basically the whole country has been looking at one person to to reduce emissions. And that's the federal minister of environment and climate change. Yeah. And, you know, you know, a lawful lot of the private sector was basically saying like, put in place the regulations or the policy policies or incentives to make it worth our while mm -hmm. to to make money off of emissions reduction or we're not going to do anything you know that that's i mean that may be a bit facetious and, and maybe a little mm -hmm. bit unfair uh but that's really what is really it's like we're not going to act until it's in our best interest until it's worthwhile that worked when you're in emissions reduction paradigm because right. in emissions reduction paradigm we actually didn't really know for all of it the causality of emissions versus climate change we were asking ourselves the questions of like, how bad is climate change actually mm. gonna get? We didn't really know. Um, is it worthwhile acting? Uh, those are all questions of emissions reduction. In emissions elimination paradigm, we've answered those questions. 
Mm-hmm. Okay. We know yeah. causality. We know it's real. We know it's yeah. going to be wickedly difficult. We know what the, the, you know, the state the world will be in will be unacceptable to future generations. Yeah. So, so, you know, that notion that we're not going to act until you make it worth our while, that's old thinking. In emissions <clears> elimination <throat> paradigm, we're seeing every day companies and governments and institutions stepping up to saying like, we're going to act, we're going to put in a plan, we're going to be transparent, and, you know, we're going to find a way to make this work. So I think we've gone from a basically a, a single person leadership model to an utterly distributed leadership model where every single person does have a responsibility, including individual Canadians for our individual consumer choices. Like, in my house, we're not going to buy another um, internal combustion engine uh, vehicle. That's just not right for us. We want to, I mean, that's part of the problem. We're not going to be on this. We've decided as a family, we're not going to be on the part of the problem. We're going to be on the side of the solution. Right. So, you know, this is still in early days about what does that distributed leadership look like? But my last comment is, is like when you COVID, you know, changed everything. But when you take a look at the momentum at, at, at the level of the individual in mm-hmm. the world in Canada, like when we had 500,000 people hit the streets for emissions reduction in Montreal. Like this, this is not a, you know an esoteric conversation among governments and leaders at this point. I mean, this climate change implications are now hitting the lives of everyday people, and you know we will get out of COVID. And I think that momentum about the public demanding change and quicker movement and real movement and so on, we haven't even seen anything yet. When you take a look at even the polling results of. Uh, attitudes and voting preferences and spending habits of, of younger Canadians. Hmm. So I'm, I'm very optimistic that we're going to get this right. Um, and because um, uh, we're going to be pushed by younger people and um, it's going to be essentially become a, a, a business imperative to be able to, to be on the right side of the equation. And we're, we're, we're starting to see that now. Yeah. Hey, w- one of the things uh, I ask uh, folks that come onto the podcast is uh, for a book recommendation. Uh, and we, we add it to, to something that we call the, the Flux Capacitor Book Club. And so uh, let's start with you, Dan. What book would you recommend uh, to the listener to read? Um, this is going to sound very, very odd, um, Francis. But I like I, the odd ones. I, I feel extremely strongly that we have to get transition emissions reduction, climate change, into sort of a normalized context and a positive context. I mean, that, that's fundamentally what the Transition Accelerator does. We find ways where we create futures with third parties, take practical, tangible steps down pathways to futures that are not just about emissions reductions. They're actually about a better, a better future, healthier, kinder, safer, more profitable, and so on. So because of that, um, I think it's very important to, to um, to bring a balanced approach to this, mm-hmm. get rid of the artificially polarized, politicized uh, views. And because of that, I really, you know, advance inside of our organization and others to say, make sure you've got a balanced life. Mm-hmm. And it, it might sound a little bit trite, but um, so my, my book recommendation is not gonna have anything to do with transitions. Mm-hmm. It's gonna be uh, a, a book that I'm reading right now, which is basically the historical uh, journals of Ray the explorer, the Canadian explorer. Um, uh, I, I'm, a, I'm a, a bit of a history buff, and I, I collect journals of polar explorers. And I'm, I'm reading the one that uh, uh, Ray right now. So that's the one I'm going to uh, recommend. Okay. And so, what's the what's the title of it? Look, it's actually a long title. I'm actually going to 
pop into my office to get the actual title right now, and it is <clears throat> The Arctic Journals of John Ray. Okay, The Arctic Journals of John Ray. Fantastic. John Ray. I think it puts a little bit of a political perspective into so where we came from yeah. as a society and what people have dealt with, the trials and tribulations, and, and uh, puts into context our trials and tribulations of our everyday uh, life. And so The Arctic Journals of John Ray, selected and introduced by Ken McCougan. Terrific. All right, we'll add that to the list, along with Paisley's recommendation. Paisley, what to, what would be oh, your recommendation? It's kind of hard to follow up that recommendation, but I guess I will go the, the slightly more um, <laughs> uh, climate-centric route, which is to say I recently read um, Power After Carbon by uh, Peter Fox Penner, and it's excellent. Um, yeah, it is excellent, incredibly forward-looking, and uh, not not a tome, so you can you can get through it pretty uh, pretty easily. Okay, so Power After Carbon. Yeah. All right, two two terrific additions to our uh, to our book club list. Appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks both of you, Dan and and, and Paisley. You've been uh, you've been very generous with your time, uh, and uh, great to connect, even though we're at opposite ends of the country, at least uh, today. Uh, but uh, it was it was a delight to have you on the podcast. That was great, Francis. Appreciate the chat. Thanks for joining me for this episode of The Flux Capacitor. I hope you're enjoying these conversations. Please take the time to rate the podcast, and we welcome comments on what you hear. The website of this podcast can be found at thefluxcapacitor.ca, including links for this episode on the show page. And while you're there, check out the book club page, which provides info and links to all the books which have been recommended by guests on the Flux Capacitor. Please tune in for future episodes of the Flux Capacitor, and let's continue the electricity conversation on our Facebook page, on Twitter, and at electricity.ca.